Hey there, Lions. Did you know that you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content by joining our paid support group, the Lions of Liberty Pride? For as little as $5 a month, you can help us grow this program to new heights. Learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com support. My experience has been that every libertarian I've ever spoken to basically come on and say the last guy that you interviewed who I did as a libertarian, I don't think was really a libertarian. <laughs> Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Heidi ho Lions, and welcome back. I've got a doozy of an interview for you today. In today's episode, the 291st episode of this program, that means you can find the show notes over at lionsofliberty.com slash 291. Let's do this thing, shall we? Today's guest is a comedian, actor, a director. He is the host of The Daily Majority Report, which streams live Monday to Friday at majority.fm. It's also available as a daily podcast. The show first began as a radio show he co-hosted with Janine Garofalo on Air America way back in 2004. He's been very critical of libertarians over the years, but... By the same token, much to his credit, he's been very open to debate and conversation with other libertarians on his program, including with some past guests of this show, like Dave Smith and Walter Block. I am very pleased to welcome Mr. Sam Cedar. Sam, are you ready to roar? Uh, I am indeed. Yes, roar. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and Sam, we'll get into some of your criticisms of libertarians and some of the dialogues you've had over the years in just a bit. But first, I want to get to know you a little bit better. So obviously, you've been around in the political realm for quite a while, but maybe you could just tell us a bit about how you first became politically aware and how you ended up eventually becoming involved with the Majority Report. Well, I, guess, I mean, I was, I, I think, a fairly uh, politically aware kid. Um uh, growing up, I mean, um, I think early on it was probably, you know, you just adopt more or less your parents' um, ideology. But um, in, um, you know, as I got a, a teenager, I um, I was involved in local politics where I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, it was more, um, you know, so it was not um, – uh, uh, ideological per se. I mean, it wasn't even partisan. Uh, there weren't really particularly partisan elections in the city I grew up. Uh, I imagine maybe that's a little bit different, but it was, there was not necessarily, you know, it was, uh, council people at large. And I ended up working on a, uh, charter commission when I was, uh, in high school as a, as an intern. And then, um, myself and a guy who actually ended up being the mayor of Worcester, um, put together a proposal for a revamping of the charter. And then, uh, I guess in college I was a, a government major and, uh, but I also had a sort of a, a dual track at that time in terms of like, uh, doing comedy and whatnot. I ended up going to law school for a while, but leaving law school and then, uh, doing comedy for about 10 or 12 years. And I would follow politics. At one point I was approached, uh, by Janine Garofalo, who I was friends with from the comedy world. And she had this opportunity to, to do a radio show for Air America. And uh, I had just gone through, I just produced a show uh, that I had uh, written for a network that um, uh, is no longer existing called Trio and had directed a, a, a Gary Busey fake reality show. And uh, it was during the Bush years. And I felt really strongly about... Um, 
about what was going on there and uh, about the the Iraq war. And so uh, I joined her on that program for what I thought would be, you know, six to six months, maybe a year. And I found that I really liked the medium of radio and uh, found talking about politics to be a lot more rewarding than than doing a sitcom with Jim Belushi. So, um, <laughs> although I gotta say, I have some pretty good stories. And I, I was gonna say, I mean, there's gotta be some merit to, to hanging out with Jim Belushi all day too. Well, uh, it's rewarding decent, in a different way, perhaps. In, indeed. And so, um, and, uh, over the years I have, you know, my, uh, I've sort of more or less left, uh, entertainment. I occasionally do an acting gig here or there, and I do some voices on some, uh, cartoons and, uh, but I've been, you know, I was doing uh, the Majority Report and then uh, the Sam Cedar show on Air America, which was a national radio network, terrestrial. And um, Al Franken was on the network and uh, Rachel Maddow and Mark Marin. When Air America f- collapsed, uh, I more or less launched this show. And so, uh, which has now been going on for about six, seven years. And I do a weekend uh, radio show that's terrestrial, but the majority report is primarily online and as a podcast. And, you know, the formats change a little bit, but um, I enjoy it. It's, you know, it's a sort of an exhausting time for this right now. But So this is really your true passion at this point. You, you dabbled in the law thing. You've, you've done a lot of work in the entertainment industry, but would you say this is where you get the most satisfaction from talking about yeah. politics and that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I, you know, every now and then I'll do an acting gig. Gig. I did one on uh, this like CBS show, and I do a voice uh, with some regularity on Bob's Burgers, um, and I usually do like one acting gig a year or so, just because it's nice just, to break it up. Just to but, keep um, your uh, keep your toe in that water. Yeah, I mean a little bit, and um, and you know, and I enjoy it. But this is over, you know, over time. This is far more um, rewarding. I've got a, a great um, uh, contributor to the show uh, named Michael Brooks, and uh, in addition to being a uh, very smart about politics, uh, also does you know we do a lot of uh, you know comedy. I mean, it's you know it's it's daily comedy, so it's not you know it's a little bit different than than working on a script for for uh, a month or two and then shooting it and editing it or that type of thing. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's fun. So it gives me a little bit and, of both. And that's one reason that as someone who doesn't necessarily agree with your worldview, I, I can listen to the majority report and, and enjoy it because you're not taking everything fully seriously. You are poking fun at people. You're not afraid to poke fun at people on both sides. And, uh, it's an enjoyable listen. I, I think to, to somebody who's maybe if somebody tuned into it and isn't hyper-political, they're not necessarily going to be turned off. And that's the same kind of tone I want to take here. I have my views, but I don't want to just be on here, just hammering every, away at everybody. I'd like to have a good time and, and, you know, have an enjoyable conversation. Cause at the end of the day, that's, that's, what this all has to be for to actually keep people's interest. Yeah, I think so. And you know, uh, the uh, generally the way that we structure it is um, the the first forty minutes or so uh, or hour more or less is free, and we tend to do uh, a long form interview with uh, a an author or a journalist um, sometimes, but uh, primarily authors and uh, or people have written a long form piece. And that tends to be, you know, a little bit drier. And uh, then as the show goes live, we move into the members area. When it's live, it's available to everybody. We take phone calls, we we read IMs, and we do sort of stuff that's a little bit more uh, comedic and uh, and oriented in that way. And um, 
and to a certain extent, that's where I started with debating libertarians, people who would call uh, into the program. It started basically as, you know, random libertarian trolls, basically. I don't want to call them trolls, yeah. but they're calling to disagree with you and, and troll you on your show, right? Right. I mean, I, I don't perceive them as trolls as much as, you know, people want to engage in, in it. And Peter Schiff's brother called me the during the show. Um, the chairman of the Libertarian Party in Florida, you know, just randomly called in. And then, you know, after that... Um, uh, I started, uh, we started formalizing it where people would say, why don't you debate this person? Or, uh, right. people would email me and say, I'll debate you. And I was like, okay. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's fun for me. I enjoy arguing and, um, uh, and I, you know, I mean, not, uh, you know, arguing in, 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 in sort of more of a formalistic uh, sense. Sure. And, um, I also, you know, I, um, I feel pretty strongly, I mean, I think my politics, uh, my ideas of, of, of what we should be doing in terms of policy are, um, really, um, uh, brought into relief uh, when sort of butting up against libertarianism. And so it's, it, it also becomes a way for me to, um, to articulate, why I believe in certain things and why I think uh, certain policies would be better than others to my audience. It helps you try to clarify a lot of the ways that you, you know, speak about your views. Is that, is that kind of, kind of what you're saying? Yes. And I mean, um, and also I think, you know, to illustrate to my audience, you know, where, uh, you know, because part of what I want to do is empower them to go out and, and, and have these same arguments and uh, to win these. I mean, so, you know, uh, there was a, and then I would do this when I was on radio, but there's a difference. You know, when I was on radio, I was doing a show that was on 70 cities across the country, including New New York and L.A. And uh, so we would have numbers in New York where we were beating people like Levin and Ingram and uh, Michael Savage. You know, you had uh, potential millions of listeners at any given point. And um you know, when you're doing a podcast or an internet show, you're no longer talking to uh, a couple of million people or you're talking to tens of thousands, you know, on a good day. And so um, it's a different dynamic and you rely on sort of arming your audience more, I think. Sure. And you also develop a much more personal relationship with your audience, even though you might not know them all one-on-one. You actually, now we actually interact with them. You might make comments on YouTube and before you know it, you're actually talking to a bunch of people in your audience and they start to feel like they know you. And, and that's the same, same kind of thing happens in us with us, with our private Facebook group. It really is a totally different way to look at the medium of communication through the media where it was bo- before it was just, we're going to beam ourselves out to all these cities across the country and you're going to listen. And well, that's about as much as we're going to interact. Well, I will say this. When I started at Air America, it was 2004, and um, the uh, uh, it was April, I mean, almost to the day, actually, uh, that we're speaking. I mean, it was uh, April 1st, 2004, March 31st, 2004. And, um, you know, I've been reading a lot of, uh, at that time, the the the, legal, the liberal blogosphere had, had sort of grown up. And so I was uh, very uh, much immersed in that world. And when Air America launched, I mean, there was a lot of management problems. There was no website. <laughs> there was literally a picture of a microphone that was not clickable. And uh, so I set up a movable type blog 
And the show, we would integrate the blog into the show. Uh, and so we were getting real-time comments uh, and we would get, I mean, the numbers we would do on that blog uh, were were massive for just a you know simple movable type blog. I mean, we were doing, I don't know, 30 or 40, 50,000 uniques, uh, you know, in a three hour period, we would have literally, um, thousands upon thousands of comments over the course of three hours, because it, it, it sort of functioned almost as a bulletin board. And so we would integrate that into the show. In fact, Janine would very often yell at me for reading the blog during, uh, the radio show. And, um, and then when, you know, this is pre YouTube when, uh, I later, I think in 2006, had a, a nine to noon show. We hooked up a camera, and during the commercial breaks, I would take IMs from listeners, and um, and I still do that. And so, radio has always been for me that type of experience. It is not, uh, you know, the, the there's been it's been seamless for me in terms of that. That's always been a big part of of what. Uh, I've done. So it's not been such a dramatic change for me at all in that regard. Yeah, it sounds like you were you were kind of a, ahead of the curve in sort of the uh, the interactivity with listeners. I, I mean, you know, I mean, there's something to that in terms of just taking phone calls. But in terms of online, I think, frankly, the only the only entity I've, I'm aware of that had done anything like that at that time, because like I say, this is pre YouTube right. um, was. Um, Chris Lydon, this guy out of Boston called Open Source Radio at the time, was on, and and he had integrated it in some fashion. But beyond that, um, and and to be honest with you, it didn't even occur to me that that wasn't something that wasn't being done. I mean, I come from, um, you know, television and comedy, and I was convinced, like, oh god, you know, uh, at the time I was um, an avid reader of, uh, and still am, of uh, Duncan Black's at Atrios. Uh, and, um, uh, Marcus Melitsis blog, uh, daily codes. And at that time, and, uh, and I was like, oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to get this, these guys on my show, because they're going to get scooped up by everybody else. I just assumed that everybody was reading those things. And, um, you know, I thought Al Franken, frankly, I thought we would get big footed by his show and, uh, no, they didn't even, nobody even seemed to be aware of what was going on online. And so it was a good it was a good opportunity for me because I, um, I could swoop right in. So now, now you mentioned the Iraq war earlier and the Bush administration and your opposition to a lot of what they were doing. Was that, was that what kind of emboldened you and, and really confirmed a lot of your political beliefs? Cause before that, it sounded like you were more just involved in a lot of local politics and, and not even necessarily in the partisan sense. It was just more something you're interested in and in, in government and, and that sort of thing. Is that when your views started to really take shape? No, I think it was before then. Um, I mean, I was um, really, really upset about the uh, Bush-Gore election, Mm -hmm. to be honest with you. Um, I I was reading Walter Mondale and Paul uh, Songus's biographies uh, as a kid. So, I mean, I was was always somewhat uh, politically engaged, but it it, it tended to be, in practice, more local. It it brought things more to the forefront for you and and something you actually needed to be actively involved in instead of just something you personally enjoyed to read about and talk about. Well, I mean, I was heavily involved in student government uh, when I was in college, and I would work on occasionally some local campaigns, but I don't think that I had 
given as much thought, and even the in 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 college, the um the the major was government as opposed to political science, and so it was very much sort of focused more on, on how systems work, I think, rather than you know, uh, political philosophy, let's say. It's, it's how this is instead of how this should be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, exactly. And um, and uh, a lot of it was at that time, my, my interest was, you know, sort of more like uh, urban development and stuff like that. Uh, and I think probably following the Bush-Gore election is when I got um, even much more uh, interested, but you know, I was up until four in the morning on election eve, and I I can tell you where I was when just about every president was elected, and I was very upset. Um, I, I missed voting for Reagan by just a couple of months uh, when I was eighteen, and so or voting against Reagan, I should say. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, I was uh, I was definitely politically aware during that time. So if you had to describe your political philosophy, I mean, I know you, you use the term progressive, but that could have different meanings to different people. So if you just had to sum up in, in, in a 90-second elevator speech to somebody what you believe the role of government should be, what you believe the role of politics should be, how would you describe that? I think government should um, make people's lives easier. Um, and I think that um, the measure of things like healthcare or the economy should be a function of how broadly it is shared. Um, how many, you know, uh, so I have a fairly egalitarian um, uh, vision of what society should look like. Fairly. I mean, not, you know, I wouldn't say a dramatic one, but a fairly egalitarian one. And um, I think government um, uh, e exists to, um, to promote that. And, um, I think that it's indispensable, uh, almost definitional to society and, uh, that it should endeavor to improve the lives of its citizenry in, in just about every way it can. Now, what's interesting about how you describe that, obviously, when we get into some specifics, we're going to disagree, but you could take that, that statement you just made, and a lot of libertarians like myself could actually like nod their head at a lot of that. It's only when we get into what we're talking about, into actual policies, that we might disagree on on what that actually means. So you might, you might think a certain regulation achieves what you want better, and libertarians might think that removing a certain regulation or removing a certain government body achieves the same thing. Uh, so in some ways, we might philosophically actually want just better lives for everybody. That's what I want. That's what I think most people want. Well, I mean, I would imagine everybody starts with that uh, premise. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think everybody starts with I like to think everybody starts with that premise. I'm not sure that I, I don't think everybody uh, does. I like to think yeah. most most of our everyday man that engages in politics do. Uh, I'm a little more suspicious of of some of the people on the top. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think that's true. So so how do does the libertarian vision as you've seen it uh, I guess directly conflict with with what your vision should be? I mean, obviously there's and when I say libertarian, just like maybe just like progressive, it's it's a very broad brush. There's libertarians oh. who who have Full who you know, there's libertarians who are all about who are okay with even federal government agencies, even you know, depending on how how broad you want to make the tent. And there's obviously, as you know, libertarians who just want no government ever under any circumstances. My experience has been that every libertarian I've ever spoken to, 
ranging from Walter Block, uh, who you said was on your show, to a couple of the uh, people who ran for the Libertarian presidency to, you know, um, oh gosh, I mean, a whole range of people, you know, who identify as Libertarian, basically come on and say the last guy that you interviewed who I did as a Libertarian, I don't think was really a Libertarian. <laughs> But I'm the real one. I'm the one here yeah, to tell so you how it really is. It's 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 <laughs> it, it makes me nervous to even attempt to generalize right. what I think you know libertarianism is. Um, and usually when I or, have or maybe it, just name something you've heard a libertarian say, or you right. you associate generally with libertarians anyway. Um, but I would say that the the belief that there is such a thing as a free market. Um, I think is fantastical, um, which I think is um, a core precept of libertarianism. What do you mean that there isn't such a thing? Do you just mean that we don't have that in our society or that's not a thing that could exist? Right. Okay. Uh, both. I mean, that is a, a big part of it. I think that libertarians' concept of rights, I think, is um, tends to shift. I think that Libertarians, I find, again, I apologize if I'm, you know, stepping on anybody's toes, but I find that uh, libertarianism is, is strikes me as, as sort of like a quasi-religion insofar as there's a belief in certain principles that even though they aren't necessarily borne out by data, if they're not working, it is because they're not being applied properly that there is a fealty supposedly to these principles as opposed to the outcomes of these principles and that the sort of the the process and the dogma is more important than actually the end result and i mean i think that's those are the major problems i have that i think will will encompass most of of you know what i think many people identify as libertarian now to be fair I think, you know, Europeans would identify uh, libertarians tend to identify a little bit differently than American libertarians. And there are I'm aware that there is, you know, a, a myriad of different uh, adjectives that one can put in front of libertarian consequentialist right. and, and, and whatnot. I and mean, that's the thing about labels. Anybody can grab it and say, this is mine. This is part of my beliefs. And, and that goes every way. There's there's no authority on what a libertarian is, just like there's no right. authority on, on what a progressive is or anything else. That, that's right. I mean, I think, though, I mean, my tend my I, I tend to believe that um, there's a little bit more consistency on a uh, on the progressive side. I mean, again, I don't, you know, I'm when people ask me, like, how would I describe my uh, ideology? I will say progressive or liberal just because it, it gives a rough approximation. But I, I feel more comfortable with just saying of the left. But I, I find that, um, you know, there's and people get a lot more worked up about, um, you know, their their specific type of libertarianism. Um, I also also think some of them in this country in particular are really neo-Confederates uh, as opposed to sort of, uh, you know, libertarians. Careful, um, Sam. That's a trigger word. <laughs> is, is that a is that a trigger word? It can I mean, be for I, some. Well, I mean, I think there are some people who seem to have a problem not so much with government, but with federal government. Uh, is and, that how you would describe a neo-Confederate, somebody that's that's kind of OK with anything as long as the federal government's not doing it? Is OK with the states doing <laughs> 
uh, a thing as opposed to the federal government. It's interesting you bring that up because that's actually been, um, you know, the chairman of the Libertarian Party was actually on, on this program and he made some some comments in relation to that, um, really actually critical of some other libertarians who, who take that position. And he, he basically said I, I, we should be consistent that, you know, if, if, the, if the federal government does something that's wrong, it should also be wrong when the state does it. And, and I tend to agree with that. Uh, what a lot of libertarians will do that I've talked to is uh, that I've, I've, I've talked to people kind of on both sides of that spectrum is they'll say, yes, we don't like the states doing it, but we fear the power of the or the idea of the federal government having enforcement over those states, even if we might theoretically agree with the federal government. But but what you're saying there, even among libertarians, is this is not just a progressive versus libertarian thing. This is also a inner libertarian battle as well. Right. Yes. I mean, like I say, there seems to be a lot of those Sure, uh, that, um, you know, I don't see so much on the progressive side. I mean, I think there's, you know, and particularly in terms of when you need to talk about how many people ideas progressive versus libertarian, there's a there's a there's a lot of uh, it seems to me to be uh, th- those type of fissures uh, within uh, libertarianism. And it's a pretty, you know, broad spectrum of, of people who believe you know, somewhat limited government, uh, no government, just state government, uh, local government, et cetera, et cetera. Well, this is, issue, is, an, is an issue for me to some extent, because in my view, I think that the purpose of, of politics and government and, and how we filter everything should ultimately be to decide what's right and wrong. I mean, I think every action is either a correct one for a person to take, a correct one for a government to take, or it's not. And I, I think once we determine that, and obviously you, you and I aren't probably going to get to the bottom of that in this interview, but we should equally apply that to every level of government and every level of human being. I mean, I think if if an action is wrong, it's wrong. And I, I think that obviously things get complicated when we're talking about government and different levels of government. But yeah, I mean, that's when I talk about um, libertarianism as sort of um, a religion. I mean, that that perspective, I think, is what I'm talking about, because from my perspective, I think there are things that um, are more suited to a federal government than a state government, than a uh, city government. Uh, than a town council, than an individual. But is that and, is that more a matter of what just makes sense to you for those those organizations at those levels to handle? That I don't know if that's really a moral issue, like like I'm talking about. Yeah, I, that's the thing. Is that uh, for me? I mean, um, my politics. You know, I guess start with some science of of morality, insofar as I think that like a a society um, is formed. Uh, or I think, you know, that people have a responsibility to other human beings uh, to help them. Uh, but beyond that, like when I talk about what the federal government, um, what's more suited to a federal government uh, than than a state government, um, I, I, yeah, morality, I don't really, it doesn't come into play uh, in those things. Well, if, if you're not using like some kind of moral sense to judge the government action, what are you using? Are you just using what you see as the, the best results? Yeah. So basically you're, you're a utilitarian. You, you look at, at what you think are the best results for, I guess, society or people in a society, and, and that's the policy you would go with. I, I, I think even that's too big of a blanket statement. Okay. I mean, I think, uh, you know, because obviously um, w- the, the government has constraints, uh, you know, constitutional constraints. Uh, and I think there's also, you know, sort of how you measure what is the utility of a program uh, or a policy uh, for a government to follow also has to take into account the sort of the the broader implications 
of of what happens with a government doing that. Because I, and I know you're not saying this, obviously, but I mean, there are people who could and probably did argue at the time that, you know, yeah, maybe slavery is not great for the slave. But hey, overall, it is like pretty good for our society. We, you know, we get really cheap labor and you know, there's a lot of good benefits. So maybe we just keep it around. I'm, I'm sure that was an argument at the time by many people. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. I mean, I um, I mean, I would have started uh, before I got to that. Uh, I would say that, you know, slavery is wrong, but it's also, you know, like what's happening to people uh, in that moment is also is problematic. So, yeah, I, I don't I mean, that's the thing is that, you know, I there's enough flexibility in um, in what I believe that. Yeah, someone could make that argument that slavery is good for our society. I would argue that it's not. Um, and it's it's yes, it's very obviously uh, immoral to me. Um, but th- but that is t- that is kind of putting a moral judgment into something yeah. that you said shouldn't you don't really yeah. think should be a moral thing. Well, no, no, no. I'm not saying that I don't think it should. I mean, I think like when you're talking about slavery, yes, obviously uh, morality is uh, a big issue for me. And I think the idea of justice inequality for people is sort of our my uh, primary starting points. There are you know, it's rather broad principles, but I'm not, uh, I don't feel like I need to adhere to, I'm not going to apply morality to uh, government, I'm, or I am going to apply uh, morality to every aspect of government. Um, I just, um, I don't have a canon like that. So, so would you ju- you say maybe judge the extent that morality versus say utilitarianism should be used on, on kind of a, a case by case basis, a policy by policy basis? Is that is that a more accurate? I don't know that morality. I mean, I mean, you can't say it doesn't have a factor, and also say slavery is immoral, so we should ban it. I just don't think about it in those terms. I think that there are some things I find to be immoral, and obviously, I I don't think that people should do things that are immoral. I try not to get too involved in like personal morality, but as a society, uh, you know, and in terms of institutions, I believe broadly in, uh, in justice, social justice, economic justice. Yeah. I mean, it's really just a, a framework. I mean, I don't approach, I mean, I, I sort of feel like everybody tries to, uh, apply their own morality on some level. Right. I mean, that's how you go through, uh, life. I mean, I don't, I think there are some moral codes I don't think we should apply that maybe others do. Um, well, there's and, different views of morality. Some people might tell right. you that, that smoking pot is immoral and therefore it should be illegal, whereas I think it's immoral to put someone in a cage for smoking pot. So we're both using our morality, but I have a very different definition of what that morality right. is. Right. Sam, we're going to dig a little bit deeper on this stuff in just a minute. But first, a quick word from today's sponsors. Hey, guys, this is Roger Paxton. And if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey everyone, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. 
The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com. You can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty. Rock and roll. Let's go back to one thing I want to dig into, if you don't mind. I, the, one of the first statements you made, um, and that was, I, I think you said, like, the free market isn't real or it's or it's a fantasy. Can can you kind of expand on that a little bit? I don't. Um, I mean, because you obviously agree people do exchange goods and services. So there's there's something called a market. Right. <laughs> I mean, oh, no. I, but I think every market <laughs> is subject to um, every market, certainly of a, a country of a large amount of people that is sustained over a period of time is subject to government interference. When you say is, you mean it, you you th- believe it should be and also is currently. <laughs> I, it's not even a should. I don't think it's possible okay. to have a market free of government interference. When you say not possible, do you just mean like, I mean, it is possible that we could elect politicians that all say we're not going to interfere. Do you just mean the, the results would be very bad? I don't think that's possible. Okay. Can you expand on that then? If I protect property rights. Uh-huh. Okay, I have now interfered with the market. If I um, now our constitution calls for the protection of property rights, but that doesn't that doesn't inhibit my argument that that market is no longer free of of government interference. It is. If I take your things, government will will come and and give them back to you, which creates value in those things. Uh, that, uh, you know, uh, value beyond my ability to take them from you. But in every uh, aspect of government builds roads, um, I've, the government has created value. Uh, the government makes employment uh, laws. The government charters corporations, all of which interferes with uh, the the exchange of goods and services. I don't think you can have a free market. It is really just simply a question, always, in my mind, of how much parity you're going to uh, provide and under what terms um, in between that exchange. I think many libertarians, or not even just libertarians, but just maybe free market advocates would say that uh, and there are also anarchists who would want no government interference. They wouldn't even want people interfering to protect private party pr- property. They they would just want to hire their insurance agencies or, or what have you. And I, we're not going to get into that whole debate today. Well, but, I mean, but, I've gotten down that road yeah. with uh, Walter Block, for instance. And, you know, we got to the point where he was telling me that in a perfect world, there would be uh, my judge and my court and his court. And I asked how who would adjudicate those two courts? And then there would be a third court that would adjudicate our di- various courts. Uh, I had a conversation with, uh, with with Walter Block when he was talking about how uh, property rights would be determined. And um, he decided that it should be a function of um, it, there was a an agrarian for, for, a formula that he used that came from Europe. And, and, and my point is that there's always an arbitrary point along the line where someone decides these are going to be the rules. And uh, and maybe it's not totally arbitrary. In some instances, you have a, a constitution. Um, and these are going to be the rules. Once those are the rules, then there is no free market because it has been framed in such a, a way in which um, there is a dynamic between parties. 
that is established. And systemically, um, it implicates the relationship between those parties. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I do get what you're saying. So would you say that even in, in a, a, let's say, a free market libertarian who is not an anarchist, they do believe in government, and, and they believe the government should really generally not interfere with the market, but should in, should enforce property well, rights to some extent? What, what market the government could not interfere with? Well, I don't, in the sense you're saying, maybe maybe not any, if, you're, if we're talking right. about showing property rights, but it all, also depends on what we're talking about when we're talking about, quote, the government. I mean, it, I agree, society it needs to have ways that it determines what property rights are. And I don't know how, if there's ever going to be a way that all those people in that society agree on what that way is. So I, I don't think there's ever a perfect solution to de- determining what property rights are uh, in that sense. But I, we do, I do also think we need to have property rights because if we don't have property rights of some kind, well, we don't, you know, we don't own anything. I could be sitting in my house. If I don't have a right to this computer and this microphone, someone might just come in and, and shut my show down. And then, you know, then we don't have a market at all. Um, but, but what I'm, what I'm asking is if, if you just took a free market to the point that some libertarians would put it where they might, they would agree that the government should enforce property rights, but don't want to interfere in any other way. You would actually say that that's just not a free market because of that. And even that, even that respect of property rights is interference in, in, in the sense that you're framing it. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you can give me an example where, um, a government, just establishes property rights and and does nothing else to uh, implicate the the dynamic in that market. I wish uh, I could. I, I wish. Right. Well, I mean, I guess that's my that's my other point is that I think um, the reason why that has uh, we have no um, example to point to in any meaningful way is because that's fantastical notion. Well, there's also no example. There's also no example of a government 100% instituting communism. I mean, even in even in North Korea or or Soviet Union, the most extreme examples, there's high up leaders that have property rights to their mansions and their large farms. So same thing with libertarianism. Yeah, there's no country that's ever or ever will or maybe even Art would agree with you never could 100% institute a libertarian philosophy. But it's all a matter of degree and which direction we're pushing things. 75%. I mean, I would agree. You can't achieve. Uh, pure communism, and um, and and obviously you can't have a free market. And I think one of the dangers that 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 takes place under that pursuit of uh, libertarianism is that uh, on its way it is um, very detrimental to uh, a lot of people. <laughs> um, I mean, the idea of of you know when I hear people talk about. Uh, shrinking the size of government. I mean, this is an argument that I think, uh, you know, a guy like uh, Mike Lee made the other day uh, at the uh, Gorsuch hearings. People are concerned. I think you were implying this, too, uh, in terms of um, uh, states and and federal government. And uh, if you weren't, um, you know, I don't I don't mean to uh, to uh, to force any view on you. But uh, some people argue that um, because of the size of government, it allows it, it gives more opportunity for corporations to corrupt it and to then, I guess, presumably do the bidding of the corporations. And so the solution here is uh, to curb the size of government. So there isn't, you know, so much rewards for the corporation to plunder there. Yeah, I don't love framing it in terms of size, but in terms of reach and depth, and maybe that's really the same thing. uh, I I think it's hard to argue that the more areas the government has control and power over, uh, whether they're successful or not, the more reasons corporations are going to want to control that power. Would you dispute that? No, 
No, I wouldn't dispute that. Uh, but I would say that if the governments weren't, um, if the governments didn't have control and power over it, then the corporations would. I'm a little confused by that statement. For instance, uh, I interviewed someone uh, a week or two on my, my show who talked about the history of, of insurance mm-hmm. and how it developed, uh, health insurance developed in this country. And um, uh, in the 20s and the 30s, uh, um, healthcare was predominantly a function of, of doctor's groups. Right. And uh, where you would prepay the doctors groups. I don't know how effective it was, you know, broad based and there was no government support for those payments. Right. So uh, that worked mostly for wealthier people. That, that's actually something that's coming back too. I've had guests on this program who actually run similar services because of the cost of healthcare that they offer a flat $50, $100 a month, basically for, for full access to their services up to a certain point to basic services. Yeah. And I think that's actually a pretty good model. The reason why uh, that model was basically quashed was because the AMA was afraid that um, these doctors groups would, would, would sort of become corporations. At that time, there was a lot of like concern about antitrust and stuff like that. And so they were the ones who really pushed the insurance model, which is a horribly inefficient um, uh, way to to uh, provide access to, to health care. And it's a you know, it's a, it's an industry that is, I think uh, a, a, a business model that is really a, a failed business model. And I, I'm actually going to agree with you here because I, I, the actual concept of what I think insurance should be, I don't think that's bad. But what the way that the AMA and the way that the federal government has crafted what we now call health insurance, I, I agree with you that it's it's a major reason that, that of the, all the problems right. we've had over the decades and decades and decades, and I don't think the term insurance is even an appropriate u- word to use because it's not, right. it's not nothing similar to, no similarities to insurance in any other area of life. Yeah. And, and but there are insurance companies and they, um, and, and now, you know, of course they, they stand um, uh, in, in a very big way, um, uh, you know, in, in the way of actually unwinding that situation uh, to a large extent. Um, but in the absence of uh, Medicare, let's say, okay, 1965, let's say Medicare never passes, you would have corporations that would simply not provide health insurance for older people, maybe some um, at an exorbitant rate, but it certainly would be way out of the reach of, of, the, uh, of, of uh, the vast majority of people, um, and particularly as they got older. But what what started the call for, because I might not necessarily disagree with you if we start there, if we start at 1965 with Medicare, but I would want to take things back decades and decades earlier to, to why healthcare became so expensive for so many people, even up to that point, to the point that Medicare was called for, because I think the AMA... Well, the AMA is just a, an association of doctors. The government wasn't involved in healthcare at all. Sure, but they do uh, lobby the that, government. Well, why would they lobby the government at that point? Well, in many ways, the AMA wanted State to sort of monopolize the, 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 the medical industry. And that's, that's what they were successful in doing in many ways. I should use the word cartelize. They wanted to reduce the number of medical schools, reduce the number of doctors, reduce the number of the people that were allowed to provide these services. And that it really did lead right. to the cartelization that we see today. Right. They, um, they heavily influenced the federal government was not involved at all in this. Uh, Truman tried uh, to, to, to federalize it, but it was all state governments at that point. Uh, that would have these systems of regulations. Sure. And yeah, and like much... I said, I don't like it on the state level any more than I would like it on the federal. Well, I, I mean, I think it would be much better on the federal level because uh, state governments, obviously, you know, uh, you can 
you and I right now, I mean, the amount of money that it takes to buy a state government um, official in terms of campaign donation, much smaller, obviously. And so, you know, I can give $10 million uh, to uh, the president uh, campaigning, but if I give $10 million, I can buy a state, you know. Well, I mean, that's the reality. And, and, um, and, and you see that now. I think, you know, a lot of um, our plutocrats are uh, well aware of that. And, um, and they are spending a lot more money on a state level. I mean, tremendous amounts of money in um, not just in congressional seats, but I'm talking about state Senate seats, state House seats. Um, they buy uh, in many states in this country. Uh, the Supreme Court is an elected position, so they they pour tons of dollars into those races. And these corporations and these uh, billionaires have uh, tremendous influence. Much easier to buy that. I mean, I don't know if you've ever lived in a in a small town, but uh, a small town is the 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 government is an extension of most of these people's businesses in their minds. I mean, you want to talk about uh, corruption? Uh, the corruption on that level is. Um, it's far greater than it is on on the federal level. Uh, I mean, maybe not dollar for dollar, obviously, because you're you're dealing with smaller situations. But I mean, these people perceive their jobs in state government and city government, and town government, as an extension of their business. Um, and so, uh, so the AMA was able to do that, and it wasn't until really the feds didn't really get involved in in healthcare in any particular way until uh, Medicaid and Medicare in right. 65. Yeah. I, I'm just saying there's a lot of, there's a lot of interferences from government and different organizations on different levels that led to that situation that I don't think yeah, necessarily certainly. would have played out the same way otherwise. Well, I mean, but what is the otherwise? I mean, where there's no doctor's associations, where there's no... No, I wouldn't say they, that either. I, I, I think almost every industry, and, and many industries do now, have have their own private regulatory systems and where they certify people. And, you know, you, you might want to go to a doctor that has a certain certification over others. But at the same time, if, if I know someone down the street who I know is great at fixing my arm, I should be allowed to pay them to, to fix my arm. You know, that, that's, the base, that's a very base way to look at it. But, I mean, that is the general way I look at the, the delivery of any service. So you don't think there should be any regulation of people providing medical care? I don't think there should be coercive federal or even state level government regulation of that. That's not the same as saying I don't think there should be regulation because I, I do Whoa. believe that the market can provide a lot of its own regulation as well. Well, well, wait a second. I mean, this is this is what I mean. It's like uh, is fantastical. Like, I mean, you got to give me an example. Of what you're talking about. I go to a doctor, and that doctor has a rating, let's say, from Moody's, okay. right? That's a rating agency. Sure. Triple A uh, rating from Moody's. Uh, in fact, our financial crisis came about because you had multiple agencies, non-governmental, private ones, Moody's, uh, there's one or two more, that were in the business of being hired by investment houses to rate the safety of their bonds. Sure, and they're paid right? off, and they're yeah, they and they're paid off to do so. And it was horribly corrupted, and those bonds ended up being uh, full of garbage, and it crashed our entire financial system. Okay. Now apply that to medicine. The problem you get is that um, I go in there, and it's AAA hospital, but they they don't actually sterilize their stuff. Now, not everybody's going to die, 
when they go in there, but some people are going to die. I might be that person. What you're talking about then may be an instance of fraud, which I, I think should be strongly enforced because to me, fraud is the same same thing as any other sort of violation of rights. Violation is the same thing to me as theft and that kind of thing. If you're committing fraud, if you're saying we have a sterile institution because this rating agency shows us that we do and everyone agrees here. Oh, but actually we don't. What if they just say we've got a triple A rating? Well, then what I would say, then if if whatever that rating stands for, if that rating stands for we certify, we're sterilized, we certify that no, well, X and Y and Z. We've just got a triple A rating. That's what, the way the rating agency does it. It means we got triple A. <laughs> you want to go to a different place? You be my guest. This is if I don't know what triple A means, I probably do want to go to a different. Well, place. OK. <laughs> now, let me ask you, how how good is your medical knowledge? So, I mean, sterilization, that's low hanging fruit. But I mean. What is the requirements that you would want, let's say, for your oncologist? I, I certainly couldn't detail a list of, of technical qualifications. I'm not, I'm not going not gonna to pretend I could. No, I couldn't either. I mean, I think that's the point now. But this, they say it's AAA. But no, nor do I trust a government agency to, to tell me either. Well, I mean, you know, um, the, there's a reason why we have these agencies. And it wasn't simply that there were some bureaucrats who were like, this is the way for us to get rich. It's because um, we had problems in this country with unregulated food uh, production, with unregulated hospitals. Um, I mean, all these things were unregulated at one time. And they led to such um, uh, uh, horrible situations for people that there was a demand to regulate these things, right? I mean, it wasn't on day one. It wasn't like the federal government was regulating uh, food processing. I mean, there was a reason why the federal government got involved in, uh, in let's say, meat processing. There's a reason why even in, uh, you, know, uh, you know, now I'm not saying every regulation is good, um, obviously, uh, I think, you know, you got to look at uh, specific regulations and some uh, some are done with best intentions and turn out to be not good. And I think they should be changed. But the idea that one could just simply judge regulations as being bad writ large to me seems silly. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why we have these regulations. Barack Obama had um, uh, the one of the last uh, regulations imposed uh, that was being developed uh, from uh, the SEC was as part of Dodd Frank was the um, that financial advisors needed to work in the best interests of their clients, which I know sounds sort of ridiculous that you would need that regulation, but financial advisors for a long time, well, no, forever. I mean, a certain uh, group of them um, could actually sell you a stock, be working for a company that is selling against that stock and it's not fraud but why, why is that not fraud well i mean because i'm just making two different purchases okay but to me to me if a if a company is actively defrauding its customer when well, it's, that's, when not it's defra that's not fraud well, it is. it's not <laughs> if you're it's actively not. working in two different ways i think it's it not is. fraud it's no, there's a definition of fraud and it is not illegal to do that. It is not illegal to do that right now. It was supposed to be uh, imposed. That has been rolled back. It's not fraud. Fraud is a legal definition. Now, if you want to, so, and, and, and think about what you're saying here. Okay. So if I sell you a car and I know that Chevy Nova, I'm just trying to think of a car, uh, the, the Subaru Outback, you come in, I'm saying, you got to buy the Subaru Outback. It's the best car. Mm -hmm. It really is great. You're going to love it. But I personally like 
the 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 Subaru um, Impreza. Is that fraud? No, right? Um, if if I sell you a car that I know is broken, well, it's not. Well, but if if you, if you if there's but it's a- not broken. <laughs> it's just that look, you sign you when you buy stocks. Uh, why can't my company short the stocks that you're buying? Is that fraud? I think it really a lot of that really depends on what the client relationship is is to that specific company. But if it's never seen if I say, if I go to a broker and I say I want to buy this stock and they might know something else, but they don't tell me that. I don't know. That might be different than if that broker is actively pushing a stock on me that they are actively maybe working against behind the scenes. I think that's a different thing. It's not. It's not fraud. I mean, it's happened. It happened in the financial crisis. I mean, Goldman Sachs that was almost their entire business model. Uh, it's not illegal. To do that, that's why there was a regulation that was put in, that when you go to one of these financial advisors, they have a fiduciary duty to work in your best interest. But now that regulation has been repealed. I mean, is know, there any evidence that that regulation was enforceable or enforced? I have a hard time picturing how that course, can specifically be enforced. I find out that your company has been shorting a stock that you've been advising me. I sue you and I can sue you and the attorney general can sue you uh, uh, criminally and can also probably sue you civilly. I mean, I think we both agree that that's 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 not a good practice and that it's wrong. I, I think I mean, and maybe you can say it's legally not fraud and maybe I could say maybe it legally should be fraud. <laughs> but well, I mean, it should be, but it's not because the regulation, which is another word for law, um, has been rescinded. Less regulation. More free market. All right. Well, I don't think we're going to come to full agreement on every on everything regarding free markets and regulations today. But I do want to veer just for a minute. I know we've gone pretty long here, and I don't want to keep you all day. But I would like to end on uh, a few points that I've heard you discuss before that you do have some agreement with libertarians on. Try to leave our audience with a nice little taste in their mouth here. So why why don't you just name a couple areas that you do see maybe not full agreement, but you know some maybe some broad agreement or general agreement with libertarians on on, on their approach to a few issues. I don't agree with the approach uh, of libertarianism. Maybe not the approach. I, I shouldn't put it that way. Maybe just a few specific areas. There are issues where I think, you know, there are issue sets where I, I find that uh, libertarians generally, uh, I'm in agreement. I mean, I think many libertarians I've talked to believe in the decriminalization and legalization of drugs. It's safe to say that most of them believe that. And I, I happen to believe that. I think, you know, I take civil liberties as a pretty strongly as an issue. I think libertarians, uh, broadly speaking, want less intervention. I would like less intervention in terms of our foreign policy. We're doing pretty good so far. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, uh, but but for me, you know, because the, actually, uh, it's funny. I mean, Sam, the, the areas you mentioned right there are actually we haven't really talked about this yet, but those are the reasons that that drove me towards towards libertarianism. Those are the initial issues, anyway. Um, well, but the, the, the nothing wo- I've said isn't uh, you know isn't supported by let's say Bernie Sanders. Sure, who is, yeah, and those are a lot of things I, I yeah, and there to me, you know, socialism and libertarianism are you know, in many respects, diametrically opposed in terms of how you get there. I mean, and that brings us kind of almost back to our, our original point where, um, you know, even if we might have very broad agreements of what we think should be the result of society, should be the result of the way we look at politics, uh, the approach and how we get there are going to be da- drastically different. And uh, maybe the results of the, those approaches are probably going to be drastically different as well. Um, but like, I'm, I'm all about working with people that are, even if I uh, diametrically opposed their views uh, generally uh finding even the one percent you agree on and holding hands and, and marching to washington or marching wherever it takes 
to to make progress on those issues. So you know that that is, is why I always try to engage with people who may, might have very different views because I know that despite very having very different even general philosophies or views on politics, there are areas that reasonable people who aren't dicks can agree on. Like one of them to me is just like not throwing an old lady in jail for growing marijuana plants because she has cancer. Like can we just not be dicks and all agree on that? And I think it doesn't even matter if you're a socialist or a libertarian. That's those are areas where we can actually make political progress because they're areas that we can just put the other philosophical discussions aside for a minute and agree on. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, um, uh, I can't even imagine the, the, well, I can't imagine the types of folks who would, well, they exist. Yeah. I've I've met them. So, uh, Sam, it's been a blast. I know we went on quite, quite a long, lot longer than we had uh, initially discussed, but I think we could probably talk for 24, 48 hours and maybe never get to, (laughs) maybe never get to the bottom. So maybe we'll do it again sometime. I'm sure my audience is going to have some feedback on some of the stuff we talked about. So maybe we'll, we'll address things again in the future, but I just want to say, you know, I do appreciate Appreciate uh, your openness, your willingness to engage in civil debate, because sadly, in our in our current political environment, it's a very rare trait that anybody wants to do this, uh, that anybody wants to have a conversation that's larger than a meme or, or a tweet or that kind of thing. So I definitely appreciate uh, your willingness to do so. And I, I encourage you to keep up the great work. I know you're going to do it anyway, because as you said, it's, it's really your passion now. Mark, uh, thank you so much. It was I really appreciate the invitation. And it was uh, it was a good having a good conversation with you. Sure. Thanks, Sam. Take care. Thanks, Mark. All right, Lions, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sam Cedar. I really enjoyed it myself, and frankly, I'm open to conversations with anybody because we have to be able to communicate with people of all sorts of points of view. And I'm sure, I mean, we even, the very surface amount we got into, I know that Sam and I have very different foundational beliefs. We, you know, view politics in a fundamentally different way. And it's hard to pursue a conversation like that. Uh, Even just over the course of an hour isn't really that much time to really get to the core of a lot of things. But I did want to at least try to address maybe some of the more fundamental differences that a lot of libertarians and progressives might have. and, And to do so without getting into a screen match or a shouting match and uh you know that's something that sam has been in doing conversations with other people other libertarians walter block dave smith uh peter schiff over the years and you know usually it goes in a similar way sometimes there's a little more talking over each other and that kind of thing but for the most part he does make an honest attempt to engage uh engage in a in a relatively civil way and i do appreciate that uh that's a quality i think we can all strive to have uh when we approach political dialogues in general with each other. So hopefully this can be just one example of that, of how to approach a dialogue in a hopefully productive way. And, you know, a lot of people are probably going to think I didn't challenge Sam on enough things or in enough areas, and maybe we'll do that sometime down the road. But like I said, for today's interview, I really just wanted to do just that, just have a conversation and take an honest attempt at seeing where each other's coming from as opposed to trying to destroy every one of his talking points or anything like that. Now, some of you actually had early access to this interview because this was released early for members of the Lions of Liberty Pride. That is our private paid support group for people who want to contribute a little bit to the show every single month. We give you between 12 and 15 podcasts three days a week every month for free, and that that goes out to every single one of you. We don't ask for a dime, but for those of you that do want to contribute to this program, help us grow the show. Every single dime goes right back into the show and making it bigger, paying our bills, and hopefully expanding this show as the years go forward here. Uh, But those of you that do choose to do that, get a little bit of extra bonus. You get access to some exclusive audio, and at certain levels, you get free t-shirts, free koozies, all sorts of great 
little fun little perks you get for joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. I encourage you to head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash support to check out just how you can join on up. I do want to give a quick shout out to a few new members of the Pride. We've got Andrew Swain, the man of many letters of liberty, Bradley Davis, and my man Alex Merced, he of the Alex Merced cast, a show that I was recently on, by the way, so be sure to search Alex Merced on iTunes to find all of his podcasts. He really knows how to pick the good ones. He's done a lot of work helping to promote this podcast as well, so be sure to check out my interview with Alex Merced. And if you didn't hear your name just now, it means I might not have uh, seen that you signed up yet, because I did record this, of course, a few days before you're hearing it, uh, or I might not know exactly who you are. Some people do sign up, and we just have an email. Of course, I don't want to just go giving your email out to the world here, but uh, if I don't know your exact name, that might be another reason I didn't mention you, so if there's any confusion, be sure to reach out to me, Mark, M-A-R-C at lionsofliberty.com, or post a message over in the forum. Uh, Again, that's our private Facebook group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. It is free to join and come and talk to me. Talk to our other hosts, Brian McWilliams, of course, the host of Electric Liberty Land every Wednesday, as well as John Odermatt, the host of the weekly Felony Friday, his look at the broken criminal justice system. We've got a whole bunch of stuff for you every week, three days a week, and you can communicate with us in that group and give us feedback Talk about the show. Tell us why we're terrible. Tell us why I didn't give Sam Sater a hard enough time today. Whatever you got to say, we'd love to have you. And while you're out perusing the old internet, why don't you drop us a great rating, a five-star rating, and a great review over on iTunes. That is the best place to leave reviews because it is still the number one place that people listen to podcasts. Even if you don't subscribe or listen through iTunes, that's the best place to leave us a rating and review. That's a really easy way you can chip in and help this show without having to chip in any money at all. Of course, you can also leave a rating on Stitcher. Uh, I don't know if TuneIn allows ratings. We're on over there too. Google Play. Anywhere you can rate us and review us, it's a huge help, of course. Now, I know it's been a while. Since we've done some Letters of Liberty, had a couple really long interviews this week, last week with Judd Weiss, another really long one, and I was doing a little traveling, so we haven't gotten around to the Letters of Liberty in a while, but we're going to bring it back, and we're going to bring it back old school, because we're going to do libertarians in living rooms, drinking liquor, and we're going to be answering Letters of Liberty. So, going to have some of the old gang in, the old Lions of Liberty crew in, to toss back a few adult beverages and answer your questions. You can, of course, submit Letters of Liberty by going over to the Lions of Liberty forum. I will post a thread there. I'm going to post a thread Monday morning, the day this show releases, and you can have most of the week to post some new Letters of Liberty for us. I also have a few in the old hopper that we'll try to get back to. You can, of course, also email me directly, markmarc at lionsofliberty.com if you want to send them along that way. Until next time, folks until this wednesday for electric liberty land followed by felony friday this coming friday be sure to tune on back until then folks live long and live free